Uh, good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Thank you, Jan. Beautiful job. Turn again, if you would, to Acts chapter 21. I might as well give you a preemptive warning. I'm going to try to use an iPad this morning. So if I seem to be lost and uh, suffering memory loss, it's because I'm lost. I do have a paper copy, however, just in case. Turn with me to Acts chapter 21, if you would please, and let's look together at a story about the Apostle Paul. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? There's probably no one in existence that has not in one way or other experienced uh, false accusations or lies being told about them. How'd that make you feel? People generally feel indignation when they are accused of something that they did not do. It's frightening and humiliating and an upsetting experience to discover that you are the victim of false accusations. Many people fall into the grip of anger, of fear, denial, wrongly accused. Nothing is more frustrating than someone saying you did it when you know that in fact you're not guilty. So how should we handle it? False accusations are easy to make but difficult to undo. Once made, somebody is going to believe them no matter what evidence there is to the contrary. When Christians are falsely accused, Sometimes the only resort that we have is the assurance that God knows where the truth lies. Even if our brothers and sisters do not, we know that our Heavenly Father knows the truth. Now, as we come to this story this morning, we, we recognize that the public relations strategy that has been proposed by James and the leadership of the church at Jerusalem to change the public perception that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have about the Apostle Paul has failed. In fact, it has backfired. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were being told, and by that we mean repeatedly told, that the Apostle Paul was against every form of Jewish ceremony. But that just really wasn't true. And so in order to alter the public perception of Paul, They had him go to the temple, and there they wanted him to help fulfill the Nazarite vow with four men who had made this vow before God, and they proposed that he pick up the expenses for all four of them. This obviously was a very expensive thing. This was the hope that the Jewish Christians would look at this experience, and they would say to themselves, hey, if he would do this, then what's being said about him being anti-Jewish can't possibly be true. So I want you to note with me, first of all, the accusations that are made against Paul in verse 27. It says, and now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, we are not told specifically where the Jews who started this rumor are from. Luke only says that they are from Asia. But given the fact that they recognize Trophimus and Trophimus is from Ephesus, then it bears repeating that probably these men were also from Ephesus. These Jews have come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Pentecost. And when they saw Paul, it says they stirred up the people. You ought to circle the word stirred up in your text there and write out in the margin that it literally means confused. They stirred up or poured together or confused. So literally the meaning is they confused the crowd concerning Paul. Now two accusations are brought against Paul by the Jews. First of all, that Paul teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. Now, this charge is similar to the charge that has been brought against Stephen. He was accused by false witnesses back in Acts chapter 6 of speaking against the holy place and against the law. If you look back in our text, you'll find that nine men have accompanied Paul on his trip to deliver this offering to Jerusalem. Among them was a Gentile believer from Ephesus named Trophimus. Every other time that they had seen Paul in the city of Jerusalem, they have seen him traveling with his Gentile friends. And since Paul is now seen in the temple, they have either assumed that he has brought his Gentile friends with him into the temple, or they have purposely made up the story in order to get Paul in trouble. Now, Luke apparently tries to be generous and says, supposedly, they supposed that he had brought them into the temple. Was this temple, was this charge true that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple? One of the commentators makes this statement about it. It says, it's absurd to think that Paul, who on this very occasion was going out of his way to appease Jewish sensibilities, should have thus wantonly flaunted Jewish law and run his own head into danger. This is a very serious charge indeed. There's a stone wall about four and a half feet high that separated the court of the Gentiles, where any Gentile could come and worship in the temple in Jerusalem, from the court of the women, the court of Israel. Notices in Greek and in Latin forbidden Gentiles to go into that area would be placed at regular intervals along that wall. Two of those notices have been found in archaeological discoveries, one in 1871, one in 1935. The text on that sign reads, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Pretty plain. Had this charge been true, that Trophimus, a Gentile, was brought into the court of Israel, even his Roman citizenship would not have protected the apostle Paul. 
However, John MacArthur makes an interesting observation in his commentary on this text. He says, even if Paul had taken Trophimus into the temple, it would not have been Paul who died, but Trophimus. So it shows that the whole thing was out of whack from the very beginning. Paul couldn't be killed for going in there. He was a Jew. If any got, anyone got killed, it would be the Gentile who violated it. So the whole thing was a pretense and all to just cause confusion. The mob had no idea what they're doing, much like any mob, any time. The second thing that I want you to note with me is the assault upon Paul, beginning in verse number 30. It says, and all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The combination of these two accusations were enough to bring people running from all over the temple in all directions. They proceeded to seize Paul, to drag him out of the inner court and began to beat him with the intention of killing him. It says that they closed the door of the temple to him. By that action, they were saying, no more, Paul. We're gonna, not going to put up with your nonsense any longer. You are not welcome to worship in the temple any longer. Now, the Roman garrison called the Tower of Antonio, where more than 500 soldiers were stationed, was located on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. It allowed the Romans literally to look down into the court of the Gentiles, and it was connected by two flights of stairs from the court of the Gentiles directly into the temple courtyard. Now, Paul has been seized by an enraged mob. They didn't want to just take him out of the temple courts. They wanted to kill him right there in the outer court of the temple mount. So as the enraged mob was trying to kill Paul, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. We later learned that that commander of the Roman garrison was named Claudius Laesus. When news reached this commander of what was happening, he immediately took soldiers and centurions to break up the disturbance. Now notice that the, the term centurions is plural. What significance is that? It indicates that there were at least 200 soldiers that went down into the temple courtyard. A centurion was in command of 100 soldiers. So if there are two, there are at least 200 soldiers that rushed in to the temple courtyard. Luke says that when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. It is not necessarily the fact that the Romans were sympathetic with Paul, but rather that they were interested in keeping the public peace. Now look at the arrest of Paul beginning in verse number 33. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And 
So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of, his, of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. When the commander comes into the outer courtyard, he soon realized it was useless to try to get any information or get to the bottom of things right here in the temple courtyard. And so he, he commanded that Paul be bound and removed to the tower of Antonio for interrogation. They arrested Paul, both for his own protection and to remove the cause of the uproar. And it tells us that he was bound with two chains, verse 33, which probably means that Paul was handcuffed to one soldier on each side. Paul must have immediately remembered the prophecy of Agabus in Acts chapter 21 that told him that this would happen to him. And when the crowd realized that the apostle Paul was being removed from their control, they violently pressed against this contingent of soldiers and they began to shout away with him. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that they're just saying, we want you to take him away from the temple. That's not what they were saying. This meant remove him from the earth, kill him. When the mob cried out for his death, Paul must have remembered when he was part of such a mob, agreeing with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Or perhaps he even, it even reminded him of the trial of Jesus when they shouted, away with him. As they were taking him up, in the, up the steps, they reminded him of Jesus' death as he was demanded in that very spot some 27 years earlier. Fourth, the appeal of Paul, verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And so he'd given him permission. Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. As the soldiers were leading the apostle Paul into the barracks to be interrogated, read, tortured, he spoke to the commander in Greek. He said, may I speak to you? And since Paul spoke to the commander in Greek, he is surprised. And he responds by saying, can you speak Greek? It's obvious that the commander is not saying, do you speak the Greek language? He's saying that he is surprised and he is relaying that surprise by saying, you speak Greek like a Greek. I thought you were an Egyptian. Claudius told Paul that he thought he might have been the Egyptian false prophet who had uh, come three years before into Jerusalem from Egypt. He proclaimed, he proclaimed himself the Messiah. He gathered a number of followers who were called shikari, which means men of the dagger or dagger men. It's translated in your text as assassins. 
This false prophet took his followers, 30,000 according to the Jewish historian Josephus, but 4,000 according uh, to the Bible and Luke. First, they went to the wilderness and then onto the Mount of Olives. There on the Mount of Olives, they could see down into the temple. This false prophet told his leaders, I am the new Joshua. I am the new Joshua. And when I give the command, the walls of the city will collapse. And you will be able to go in, defeat the Romans, and take the city. The Roman governor at the time, his name was Felix, Before this group of rebels had time to carry out their plan, he acted. He killed some, he scattered the remainder, and he took about 200 captive. The Egyptian very wisely disappeared. So now the Roman tribune, Claudius, thought that Paul might be that Egyptian. Understandably, the feelings in Jerusalem toward this Egyptian would not be very kind. That's what he was thinking as he rushed down into the court of the Gentiles. I think it's interesting that God used a pagan soldier to rescue Paul from certain death. Never doubt God's ability to send to even the most unlikely people provisions and processes to deliver his people from trouble. So does God give us any guidance in how we should respond to suffering and difficulties? Well, Paul in his letters gives us some principles that we can apply in facing suffering and hardships and difficulties, and I'll give them to you very briefly. First of all, God's power is best exhibited by weakness. God's promise in 2 Corinthians Chapter 12 and verse 9 is, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Only when we realize that we are without strength do we really depend on God. Secondly, with God's power, we can face all things. That second principle or that second truth is found in Philippians, where we read in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse literally says, all things I am able. All things I am able through Christ who continually gives me his power. Now that's not some kind of positive thinking nonsense. This is reliance upon the supernatural power of God. Number three, God's comfort is available to us. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Our Heavenly Father is interested in comforting us. He is the originator of mercy, and He is the God of all comfort, which means there is no circumstance in life that is outside of God's comfort. And as a father is always ready 
to show compassion to his children, God is at any moment ready to offer comfort to those who come to him. Beyond just a concern for comforting us in our difficulties, God comforts us in order that we might in turn comfort others in the same way that God has comforted us. And fourth and finally, trouble causes us to rely on God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth wrote, Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves. He's speaking of all the hardships and all the difficulties that he has, he has faced and experienced in Asia. And then he continues in that same verse and tells us God's design behind troubles and difficulties. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He wants us to learn to trust and rely on him alone. In our world today, there is a, an artificial imitation evangelism that says, you just need to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you're going to be happy and wealthy, and you're going to be healthy. You will never experience any trouble or any pressure. You will be famous and you will be powerful and you can live your best life now. Such an understanding of Christianity is false. It is not supported by scripture and anyone who preaches such nonsense is a fraud. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the apostle Paul says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Great pressure is applied. Great pressure must be applied when grapes are in the process of being made into wine. In the same way, great pressure is sometimes put on Christians for various reasons. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, we are hard-pressed on every side. Yet we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And in Romans chapter 8 and verses 37, 38 and 39, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future or any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe God's talking to you today. Maybe you feel like you need help. Maybe it's something we talked about this morning. Maybe it's not. But would you be honest with him today? Let him know how you feel. Submit yourself to him and tell him that you want to do things his way. Ask the Lord what he wants you to do about the area that he's talking to you about. And then step out in faith and obedience and do it. Obey the Lord.
If you've never prayed and asked the Lord to forgive you and to become your Savior, that's where you need to start today. That's how you become a Christian. Just tell the Lord that you want to do things His way, that you are sorry for the sin in your life. And no matter where you've been, no matter what you may have done, you can be assured that He will forgive you. He will forgive you. And he will begin to change your heart and your life. He will also be able to help you work through the hurts that have wounded you so deeply. He will give you the hope and the strength you need to face each day. You can do this on your own. Or in a few moments, you'll be given the opportunity to come and have someone pray with you. You don't have to live another day without God. You don't have to live another day in your own power. Let him give you the gift of forgiveness and of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for loving us. We want to thank you for providing for us. We recognize that life has many difficulties and sometimes that we are hard-pressed. Some of those who are gathered here this morning have had a difficult week, maybe a difficult month, maybe it's been a, a difficult year. And they're, try, they're tired of trying to carry it on their own. They don't have the strength, and they realize that they need your help. Would you help them this morning as they turn to you? There may be those who have never place their faith and trust in you and so Lord I pray that you'd help them to begin by accepting Jesus Christ as their personal savior admitting that they're sinners and that they cannot save themselves accepting what Jesus did on the cross on their behalf there may be difficulties in their life that they don't know what to do about and so Lord I pray that you'd give wisdom I pray they'd be able to find their strength in you Whatever it is, Lord, that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.